0: How are you guys doing, Chiniamaji family? This is your host, Mark Karaki. Excited to be bringing you another episode of the, of the Chiniamaji podcast. This week, we host the amazing Jason Eisen, founder of Maramoja Transport and Utu Technologies. Jason has a fascinating story. He, he's a founder with a non technical background, but he's driven by curiosity and a can do uh, attitude. And he is actually one of the first people to introduce a taxi-hailing app in Nairobi in 2013 through Maramoja. And through the process of building that solution, he uncovered another problem, which he established another company to solve, which is Utu Technologies. So Utu Technologies is in the process of creating an entire new framework or a protocol for enabling trust on the internet. Fascinating story of a founder who has big ambitions, but also has a very practical, execution-driven mindset. And Jason is one of those people I admire, super friendly guy, awesome, awesome ecosystem actor. So this is a great story. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Chinyo Magic podcast. It's been a while since we had uh, one of these, a couple of weeks, I think. And um, I'm excited to be back and I'm excited to have this awesome guest that we have here today, Jason, I hope, I hope I'm gonna say your, your last name right, Aisin? Eisen. Eisen. yeah, Jason Eisen, founder of two brands, two companies, Utu yeah. and uh, Maramoja. I guess Maramoja was your first foray into the startup world in, in Kenya. Yeah. And that morphed into Utu, which is a, a very, very interesting um, product, if you would call it that, or even I guess it's more of a platform, right? Uh, you
1: could call it a product, I'd say.
0: If yeah. Product's okay. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. Good to have you. It's been a long time coming. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I love getting an opportunity to share our story in different contexts.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's kind of why why we're here to give folks like yourselves the opportunity to actually share their story, teach, um, so that other folks can learn from your experiences, and just you know, um, I guess in a, in a very real sense, give entrepreneurs. Uh, a platform right mm-hmm. so that we we can learn from each other and um uh, we can continue to build this exciting ecosystem that we're all part of. Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, is this, this is this your first podcast? You don't look like a novice here.
1: Um, no, I haven't done so many podcasts, but I've certainly given enough interviews, and uh, I can say that uh, public speaking doesn't uh, doesn't scare me. It, it actually in set like it, it motivates me. It excites energizes you. me. Yeah. Uh, it excites me, especially live public speaking. Uh, because the energy from the people that are hearing what you have to say maybe for the first time uh, that's what keeps me going as an entrepreneur is like all that energy of people that get excited when they learn about what we're doing and they think oh wow that's going to be a great future for for this thing or for this right. thing that I'm interested in or that can apply here. Right. And so anytime I get a chance to tell my story in any format
0: I'm always. Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing how ideas energize the human mind right. Um, yeah. I guess our, our history as a human species has always been about ideas and implementing them and, and innovation and, and moving forward and solutions and, and, and that, that type of stuff. So cool stuff. So why don't you tell us uh, You know, the way we do this thing is very kind of like uh, conversational, right? Sure. It's about who you are, where you came from, where you, I, where we start is a bit of your background, where you went to school, how you ended up here, yeah. how you ended up turning into an entrepreneur. Yeah. And then after that point, we, t- we look at your, your journey as a, uh, as an entrepreneur, what's that been like? Sure. So why don't we just
1: yeah, start great. there? Yeah. Um, so so where, were you,
0: where were you born? Where'd I'm you Jason, <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, Eisen, as we, as we learned earlier. Yeah. Uh, originally from Boston, Massachusetts in the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up there and then spent some time in Nashville, Tennessee in high school, and then went to Washington, DC for university, okay. uh, the American university, uh, School of International Relations, or School of International Service, uh, studied international relations. Mm-hmm and yeah, stayed in DC for about 10 years after I finished oh, wow. undergrad. Mm. I got a job, okay, I had a brief stint as a lobbyist uh, working at a lobbying firm. Uh, what uh, were that you was quite a, What were we lobbying for? <laughs> quite a range of things. Some I can say that I really liked and agreed with. Uh, some I was maybe indifferent and some I could say I really was not a fan of. Interesting. Um, but I guess that's that business. You take uh, the clients that come. You don't necessarily always have the luxury of uh, choosing your clients. Um, wow, so, so, so. I only basically... did it for about a year though. Uh, I didn't last long. What, what did you learn year.
0: from that experience? Other than. Bad...
1: That I didn't want to be a lobbyist uh, mostly. <laughs> um, I also learned, I could say, uh, how the systems really work, right? Like mm-hmm. um, how influence moves through a system. Uh, that things are not what they seem on the surface. Totally. Like the message that you're reading or consuming has been crafted through three layers of people. The statement somebody makes is forebode, that's foreboding has been pre-written and right. planned with the other part. Like uh, this, every it's an orchestrated show. Oh. A lot of it, and sure. uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, the influence of special interests is pretty strong and. Uh, I didn't really want to be a lifetime part of that. Uh, So I also, I can say it's been, that that brief stint, I can say I learned a tremendous amount from some of my seniors in that industry about uh, how to approach business, about one of my core principles in business is like uh, billing for value, not for time, uh, which is a lesson I learned there for sure. Right. Um, But quite a few other things, um, how to negotiate, how to, uh, do a public campaign for advocacy, the importance of being engaged in government relations, and how the direct relationship between business and policy and that dynamic. So that was a fantastic foundation for things I've done later in my career. Though I had no idea it would, would be play out that like way. that.
0: Yeah. yeah, wow, that's interesting. So mm-hmm. I mean, how would you characterize? And we'll just stay on this for one one more question. Sure. How would you characterize that special interest influence into? the outcomes that happen and affect people's lives. And how would you juxtapose that against just outright corruption, right? I mean, because is it
1: is it cleaned
0: over? Yeah, you know? I think
1: we're talking about uh, two birds with different, of like uh, similar colors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so system, lobbying systems are legalized forms of influence, right? Uh, corruption is influence. It's uh, using a mechanism that's not available to everybody because of a certain access to a person or capital or power or or power information. Uh, And lobbying in many ways has the same symptoms, but it's been uh, legalized and structured and tried in an effort to make it transparent. Um, Yeah, I I always laugh when people from the U.S. particularly come here and like really get them out of shape about the corruption here and I remind them that you know, we, we, just legal, we just legalized our corruption. We just, have, we just have yeah. a clean yeah. version yeah. of the
0: same thing, right? But, Cleansed version yeah. of the same thing, but it, uh, the, the, the base of it is, is, is pretty rotten. Yeah. There's actually a show on Netflix called Rotten, actually. I haven't seen it. I'm not a yeah, big so uh, watcher. So this is stuff. actually um, really kind of uh, deep dive, uh, insightful, documentary style. Show about largely different elements that impact people, but the the food, the food supply chain. There's one about um, uh, there was one about the sugar lobby, okay, right, and the history of that, okay, and how it even goes back to the when when Castro took over from Cuba, and one of the biggest sugar farmers industry guys moved to Florida, and how that family has controlled that whole lobby in a crazy way and the, the consequences of that in terms of <clears throat> just the health care, how it has impacted the health of the country. Hmm. And you look at that, you're like, my goodness, you know, we're talking about, you know, changing an entire uh, country's or even direction in terms of just how people, like, how people live. Because, you know, the U.S. has very much been about, like an unhealthy population. uh, And people have talked about fat and carbs and so on and so forth. But sugar has always kind of been like this thing that nobody's really kind of touched.
1: And you wonder why. But yeah, there's a lot of money in sugar, right? Yeah, I I would have to educate myself about what you're talking about. I don't know too much about it, but yeah, uh, no, I mean, so that the whole lobbying thing, it was sort of a diversion, it, so I fell into it and fell out of it just as quick as I could say. Yeah. And I went to an international development consulting firm, uh, mm-hmm. also based in DC, basically implementing donor projects, USAID projects mostly, but some EU, World Bank, UN type projects. And I worked there for about seven years uh, designing projects, eventually found my way to East Africa from, I guess, starting from 2010. I started coming to East Africa and focusing between Kenya, Uganda, and South Sudan on designing some different programs, uh, governance programs right around the time of uh, devolution was happening. Mm-hmm. It was also the time of uh, the establishment of the government of South Sudan and the independence of South Sudan. Mm-hmm. I was working on a project to try to interesting up times up and support the 70s, that government, yeah. and yeah, so I just became fascinated by the whole of East Africa. Right. And this is you know, twenty ten, and so. The tech scene was in its infancy right. in Nairobi. You know, M Pesa and Ushahidi had launched about three years earlier and started to put tech Kenya on the map as a tech place. And it was just early and exciting and it felt like Silicon Valley in the seventies. And we were designing these big donor projects and uh, I was my work was mostly to Come around Kenya and understand who are the stakeholders, who are the players, public sector, private sector, nonprofit sector, civil society sector, uh, who can we partner with, who can we work with to achieve the ends of this program, whatever it might be. And in many cases, it was innovative small startups that we were wanting to partner with because they, we thought they were more clever in how they were delivering kind of important services. and. I, yeah, I became pretty excited by the whole scene here and fascinated by it. And so after one particular trip here, November 2012, I'd already been coming for some time and spending a lot of time in the region. I knew I loved Kenya. Um, I just had this idea after a number of really terrible experiences with taxis, Mm -hmm. I had every bad experience with give, a taxi. Give us, some, give us
0: at least one or two stories. Oh
1: gosh. Uh, okay, so there was a taxi driver that uh, had dropped us off for a meeting somewhere in Kiambu, uh, mm-hmm. in a rural place uh, for a meeting. and Came back from the meeting and he was just totally drunk. He couldn't even sit up in the driver's seat <laughs> of the taxi. He was falling out of the chair. <laughs> We had another driver that had dropped us for a meeting somewhere also, kind of out in the bush and uh, got tired of waiting for us and just left. And, uh, <laughs> he, just, he just He just up and left. Sorry, uh, this is not my problem uh, Yeah, no, not my chair, not my problem, I guess. Uh, <laughs> we had another driver that uh, tried to rope us into an arms deal. Uh, arms? Yeah, he was... To uh, Sudan or where? Uh, to Somalia. Okay. He, we were how, did, how, did he, how did he broach the subject? We were how riding did. around in his car for a few days and we had become friendly. You know, we've been traveling... In Around uh, the Mao Forest area, we were doing some research on like uh, Mao Forest Conservation Agriculture Program, Mm -hmm. and uh, he, you know, developed a relationship with us and (laughs) built up his mark, and then he said, you know, I have a really great investment opportunity. Uh One thousand today gets you ten thousand next week. I was like, wow, (laughs) 10X return in a week sounds like knuckles. Uh, Yeah, this is this sounds great. Uh, (laughs) Tell us more, and then it finally comes out that there was some weapons and some. So anyway, we had a lot of interesting Very experiences. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, this is mind you, this is November 2012. And well. so the day I fly back from Kenya to DC uh, where I was living, I landed in DC and I took seven different types of tech-powered transport all in the same day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day I landed, I took an Uber, Uber, a car to go, a bike share, the Metro app, the bus app, ways for traffic. And so on and that night i was sitting at home and i realized oh my god two years ago not one of these things existed existed, and now i'm using seven in a day like it's nothing and i thought about how unbelievably transformational that was in how i moved around my city as somebody who didn't have a car right and then i thought back to nairobi where we had this amazing tech ecosystem and we had all of these challenges in transport because it turns out all these stories that i had Everybody else uh, turns out everybody else had a lot Adversion. of and similar yeah. stories yeah. Uh, and I put these two things together and that night I was sitting at home and I couldn't stop thinking about all of these things together. Two months later I quit my fancy consulting job, moved to Nairobi to start what would become at the time uh, the first taxi app anywhere in Africa. Uh, this is Marimoja.
0: This is pre Uber?
1: Uber was a small company back then uh, again we're talking when I, I, I came to Kenya First on March first, 2013, four days, three days before Uhuru got elected for the first time, everybody else was leaving Kenya and I was coming. Interesting. Uh, flights were cheap. Uh, <laughs> coming in, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, Uber was only in maybe. Uh, think like five six cities in the US and uh, maybe one or two cities internationally I think uh, in Europe mm-hmm. uh, at the time when I came here mm-hmm. uh, and then it was maybe about three months after I got here I think it was June 2013 that they announced that they had raised their Series A round from Google like 250 something million dollars that was really their first big raise so Uber wasn't even uh, the a
0: meaningful kind of Goliath yeah Goliath that we yeah know it to be yeah today. very different it's amazing how early days it's amazing how that has changed yeah. so fast, right? That's seven years ago, yeah.
1: or six. Uh, seven. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. We seven six years, years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so you, you you quit your safety net kind of environment because yeah. there's nothing that says entrepreneurship about anything that you were doing.
1: No. No. I didn't really even realize I was an entrepreneur, or uh, I don't know whatever. I don't know how much I even knew what it meant to be an entrepreneur. You know, I think in the U.S and in many other places, we're presented a very narrow path of, op- of like, options for our life, and we're presented that narrow path of options as if it's a very broad path of options. Mm. It's like, you could be a lawyer, or a dentist, or a doctor, or an accountant, or you could be anything you want as long as, as it involves going to a four year university, getting a professional degree, and then wearing a suit to an office. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know, and I, and I, I was more inspired by this m- particular idea uh of kind of bringing a safer more accessible mode of transport to nairobi and eventually beyond than i was with the concept of entrepreneurship or that i had this identity as an entrepreneur which is something that i can say now seven years in looking back like uh, it's a deeply ingrained part of my identity and i often joke that it's pretty scary to think that i'll never be able to work again like i'll never get another I, i'll never be able to get another job it's impossible <laughs> to think that I. Go take a job somewhere.
0: Wow. Uh, so, I'm a, yeah. so I'm always fascinated by 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 that dynamic, right? Like, so I, I guess when you were making that move, what did it mean to you? What 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 were you trying to? What itch were you trying to scratch?
1: You know, uh, so I had spent, like I said, about seven years in this consulting firm, and mostly my role in that firm was business development uh, and program design. So I would spend months uh, putting together a program, designing a project, the interventions, the team, the partners with a group, with a team, not all by myself of course, but uh, a group of us would do this. And then if we happened to win the contract, we would then hand it over to an implementation team. Mm -hmm. So I had spent seven years writing proposals, winning tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, and in some cases billion dollar contracts, and yet I would never really implemented anything. Mm, mm. And so then you look forward at these projects that maybe you had some role in designing, and then if it was a success, you want to say, oh, we designed a great program. It was a success. And if it was a failure, you'd want to say, ah, the implementation team messed it up, uh, right? <laughs> we did a great <laughs> job. We design. did a great And so at seven years, I just kind of looked back and thought, man, I really should have something that I've built, something that I've done more than just yeah. uh, one contracts for a company and handed them off for somebody else to do. To do it, yeah. And I think I really just had a desire to build something and to try. Got uh, it. Uh, yeah. And this one particular idea. I don't know why it grabbed me so hard the way it did, but it did. Mm-hmm. And I just went with that. It's interesting. So you're trying to solve a problem that
0: was your own problem in a very real sense, mm-hmm. at Not least in this part of the world. Yeah. In this version of your existence. Yeah, absolutely. So what yeah. happens? You, you show up in Nairobi. What was the first thing you did? Because you don't have a tech uh, background.
1: No, I didn't have a tech background. Uh, <clears> that's quite a running joke in our company that uh, use small words around right. Jason. Uh, um, but. I, nor did I have an entrepreneurship background, nor did I have a transportation background. I had a background in like looking at, a f- at any given problem I was presented with. Being a curious human being. Being very curious and being very passionate about pretty much anything that I take on. Awesome. And so once I once you point me in a direction or I point myself in a direction, it's pretty hard to stop me from moving forward in that direction. And it doesn't really matter what Tenacity, obstacles you'll throw in my way. Yeah. I'm not someone... Uh, I. I have a deep passion for mountain climbing and I can't say that in any time I've ever been on the side of a mountain that I've ever thought, hmm, maybe I should just turn back. It got it got hard here. Maybe I should just give up and turn back like. Uh, so anyway, we I, I came and we set up uh, kind of this initial version of a taxi app. We tried to take this to market. I found a, So I who's the who's weed? Yeah. So you? I had a local partner, a guy. Uh, who had invited me out here to kind of do this with me. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was already living here running a business Mm -hmm. and he ended up kind of really messing me over. Uh, I was living with him, uh, staying at his house and he disappeared out of the country immediately after I got here. He told me, oh, I have to go and take care of some business outside the country and then stopped returning my phone calls and then i came home one day and found the locks changed on the house that i was staying there. are you kidding me and so i ended up partnering with one of his young employees a really bright young uh, technologist uh, kenyan guy what kind of business was he in uh, it was a logistics business uh, oh, okay. yeah and um, but one of his young employees uh, ended up uh, who i had already been talking about the project with uh, decided that he and i uh, we would pursue it together and at the same time, I met a Russian lady, a Belarusian lady, uh, who was here traveling, and she also became very quickly part of the whole scene. So from early days, it was myself, this guy, Mostly Steven, cool. uh, <laughs> and this lady, Paulina, uh, me, Steven Kamani, and Paulina from early days uh, that started this out. And we were pushing and essentially I kept, uh, to be honest, we were just trying to build like Uber for Kenya, Uber for Africa, and we didn't really have any innovative hook or anything that we were doing terribly different. We just thought we'll do it here. Right. Right. And over the course of probably the first six months, we realized that was a really fundamentally flawed proposition uh, that the problem Uber was solving was a California problem and the problem we had here was not the same problem. So nobody at the time, I think back 2012, uh, 2013, had the problem, how do I get a taxi? Everybody had the problem, how do I get a taxi that I trust? Mm-hmm. I had, and everybody was tending to do this the same way. We would go around and ask hundreds of people, hey, we have some mock-ups, so would you use this app to get a taxi? And then say the same thing, well, why would I use your app? I have my guy. What do you mean you have your guy? Mm-hmm. Oh, anytime I need a ride, I, I have my who guy, who? I call Benson. He's just stay, He stays just by my house. Well, what if you're not at your house? You're, you're at your work. Oh, well, I have a different guy called David who's based near my work. I was like, okay, well, what if David doesn't answer the phone? Oh, or, or what if he's not available? Oh, well, then he sends his friend Patrick, and I, anyone that David sends me, I'll trust. Wow. Oh, interesting. Well, what about if David doesn't even answer the phone at all? Oh, well, then I call my sister who also works in that area, and she sends me her guy. He's called Samson. So they had like six degrees of separation so from you the had, entire... Yeah, and then I realized at some point, oh my gosh, I was doing the same thing. If I open my, ta- my phone uh, and I uh, look in the phone book and I search the word taxi, David, taxi, Westlands, Paul, taxi, Kilimani weekends only, driver, <laughs> CBD, uh, airport, Kisumu, taxi, uh, Steven, right? You have right? Your, your guys. And you have your guys. And you're always going to those guys. And right. it turns out taxi drivers, Uh, were as afraid of clients as clients were of drivers because every taxi driver, mind you has had the experience of somebody posing as a client attempting to rob them or carjack them Mm. so there was this massive atmosphere of mutual fear and mistrust Mm -hmm. and we realized that this was the core of the problem we had in Nairobi, not how do I find a taxi how do I find a taxi that I actually trust my guy, the guy that I really like, Uh, I'll wait longer for my guys, I know them I like the way they
0: but, but drive. I'll, 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 I'll kind of, I guess trust was has always been fundamentally um, part. It's weird because at the same time, yeah, I kind of kind of agree with you because when people started using the apps in California, the trust factor thing wasn't too much of a consideration. Yeah. I think I think there was a little bit of hesitance if I remember correctly where people are like, so I'm getting into your personal car. There was some of that. Yeah. But it wasn't as as maybe a big of a leap. So there's
1: some, I think there's some, there's a few things driving that. And one is that in the markets where these products first came into being, there's high levels of institutional trust. And so you assume if somebody has a driver's license and a insurance sticker, and they are driving for a big company, or any company. A big company, yeah. Uh, that's why the trust there's, is. There's an implication, or there's an uh, assumption of due diligence that's been exactly. done and trust that's afforded to that. Right. And there's also, like, we have very strong you know, credentialing systems, and so all of that is generally considered like um, not a barrier for many people. But now if you actually look, the majority of people don't think like that. If you look at sharing economy globally, There's no sharing economy platform, whether Uber or Airbnb or any other globally that has crossed the chasm into the majority of users. In select markets, yes, okay, fine. In San Francisco, maybe uh, they've crossed the chasm Uber into the majority, but uh, most markets, it's still hovering around the high teens, percentage adoption, 20% adoption. It's not even in the the early majority, let alone the late majority, and why is that? because the majority of people still think it's pretty crazy to get into a car with a random person or to let a random person stay in your spare room or to stay in theirs. Uh, would, okay, the spare room thing for sure. Um,
0: I'll in the, in the, kind of want to unpack that a little bit. Sure. and Maybe there's not even a conversation about, about that. Um, when you measure, right, adoption, penetration, yeah. what are you really measuring what are you really measuring? Are you people measuring the, the, the entire addressable market? Are you measuring, and what's the addressable market? Is it transport? Is it people who are, can actually afford to actually use a taxi? I, and I think maybe in different cultures, it might have different depth because of all these other things we're talking sure. about, right? Institutional and so on and so forth. So I don't know, like, it seems like- And your point sh- is fair, oh, sorry, go ahead. It, it just seems like the this app-driven transportation thing, is, is quite entrenched and people have accepted it, right? Whoever is going to use Certain transport right, around the world. I, I, would be, I would be very curious to see which market are people who, can st- who still use taxis, if it's not being regulated by the government in mm-hmm. terms of you cannot, i are not using an app. Right. I would be very curious if, like, they can afford to take a taxi and it's, the option is available. I yeah. I'd be, I'd be surprised if that's actually.
1: I mean, if just look, uh, just as you travel around the world and go to different cities, it's not like you don't see taxis anymore. You do. You still yeah. see them, so and they I wonder, still have Who's business,
0: using who's right? using who's using those taxis? I'm curious. A this lot is of interesting. people.
1: This is the this is that's my weird, point. Weird, for, us, it's, for yeah. us deep inside the tech world, there, there, it feels like. These oh, are true. universally adopted technologies, but they are not. Go outside Nairobi and ask how many Kenyans are using a taxi app. Even if you go to Mombasa, if you go to Kisumu, where we operate in those places, but the percentages of people in biggest in the biggest capital cities Interesting. and among certain populations, penetration is high. But as you say, like out of what group? Out of the total universe of people? Out of uh, mm-hmm. so. Even if we leave alone the statistics because I can't quote you the methodology of any yeah. of those numbers uh, off the top of my head and we just go by anecdote uh, and by our own internal data as a taxi app. Uh, I can tell you anecdotally uh, we have countless incidences of this story. I was using Uber or I was using Bolt. Uh, and I would get a driver that I liked on one day, and the next day I'd get a terrible driver, the next day I'd get a good driver, so I took his number, and now I call him directly. Mm, Interesting. So Uber, which is supposed to commoditize drivers, or Bolt, which is supposed to commoditize drivers, and give the assumption to the user that all drivers are the same, hence why they don't give you a choice which driver, because they don't want you to think about drivers as individuals, but as a commodity, to take you from A to B, but that's not true, he's a person, and I have my guy, and our data from our app shows us that people will wait twice as long for their guy or their friend's guy, then they'll wait for a random taxi, they'll choose a driver who's twice as far away if he's recommended by them by their friend or he's one of their existing favorite drivers, then taking a random yeah, driver people with a, There's a
0: lot of people, a people with a lot of time on their hands. I mean, I, I don't know, like. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, the, guys, but that's an important piece that you're noting, is the context matters, right? Right. So, if I'm going to a business meeting during working hours at an office address, my behavior is different than if I'm going to my friend's personal home address in the evening, probably for a it dinner. Makes sense. And so this is what we actually, as Maramoja came to recognize was that trust was the massively important thing, but that trust is not static, nor is it monolithic. Every single person trusts, although we trust generally in the same way, based on who we know, the way we weight that uh, factor amidst other environmental factors in the moment when we're making if a transaction male, is constantly evolving. Right. Male, female, is it day or Age. night? Are you inside or outside? Are you in a safe neighborhood or a dangerous neighborhood? Right. Is it raining or is it good weather? Where you're going going it, to, Are you going to a mall, a restaurant, an or office, some, or a home? Or is it your home or yeah. somebody else's home? Yeah. So all of these contextual factors are yeah. influencing how we're making our decisions in real time and our point is that an aggregated star rating that says this guy has, you know, x100 ratings of and an aggregate of or an average of 4.7. First off, those rating systems are binary. They're not five stars. It's like five or not five, anything less than a five is a failing grade, right, on mm. most of these platforms. Mm. So there's immense social pressure, riders know, that if I give this guy anything other than a five, it's threatening his like uh, ability on the platform, mm. and there's social pressure that's involved, and also it's like five stars according to who and for what. Maybe, so for me, I like a taxi driver that drives fast to get me where I'm going, plays cool music, and lets me smoke cigarettes in his car. <laughs> and for somebody else that's a one-star taxi Yeah, that crazy right? passenger yeah that's a one star for me that's five right so the question is when we're looking at star ratings aggregation removes all the nuance and context mm. and purpose and intent of evaluating quality and so we don't know why it was given five stars or who it was and what their values and preferences were so we wanted to move to a system of trust that is much more reflective of how we trust in the real world based on descriptive factors that we actually can uh, have some insight about more than just like aggregated averages of ratings.
0: So essentially you layered tech on top of the existing context around which people leverage transportation. Exactly.
1: So we took that core concept of a taxi app and we said if the driver is not a commodity, but a person, our job is to help the passenger identify the person that's going to be the best driver for them in this particular moment. And this was sort of the birth of our trust engine, uh, this AI system that we've built, which has been our unique discriminator as Marimoja for since we started. And it also then formed the foundation of what has become U2 Technologies, which is our effort to take this trust infrastructure, this trust engine that we built, and offer it as trust infrastructure as a service to platforms in every other sector of the sharing economy, because taxi and mobility is not the only sector where trust is important. If you think about trust as really a form of infrastructure or currency that underlies any transaction that you're doing, so we realized that the idea that every single platform right now has to build their trust infrastructure themselves their recommendations engine, their feedback mechanisms and they're usually done as afterthoughts because it's not the core product, Uh, yet there's so much value to be captured by doing a very thoughtful implementation of trust infrastructure systems, whether it's just the recommendation system or the feedback or both, uh, you can capture a lot more learning and drive all of your metrics so, for instance, on Marimoja, we know that the trust engine drives conversion by like 20%, so so the, satisfaction, retention. So, describe the
0: user experience, right? Like, yeah. okay, so, so I have an app, yeah. and I'm using an app to call my guy that I already could call outside the app. Or, And I, we've talked about this before, but for the sake of the audience, yeah. help us understand how that trust engine works
1: different than... Mm-hmm. An Uber experience. Yeah. so again, uh, if you think about uh, Uber's model or any taxi app, I mean, any other taxi app other than us, basically their model, uh, they have a pool of drivers. Each driver is a dot in a, big, in a big pool and they have a pool of clients. Each client is a pool, is a dot in a big pool. And each client and each driver has exactly one relationship back to Uber and that's it. Uh, yet they claim a network effect. It's not actually a network effect. It's a supply side economy of scale. They have a lot of drivers, so they can give a lot of customers a good experience. It's completely different to say the network effect that you experience from Facebook, where if somebody releases a better Facebook app tomorrow, you still won't use it because you don't use Facebook for the app, you use it for the people that are in the app. So with Utu and Maramoja, that's our underlying hypothesis is that consumption is becoming more social and that recommendations and validations of quality and, and trust from people that you're socially connected to are far more powerful than random validations. So, how does so the f- user experience is essentially, I come to the app mm. and when the first thing I see on, uh, when I open is like all the drivers that are around and the ones that I have a relationship with, instead of showing up as an icon, like as a car icon, they show as a heart. So I can instantly mm. visually see that there's you know, hundreds or thousands of drivers around Nairobi at the moment, and my favorite guys that I like to ride with are here, 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 and here, right? So then I make a request for the ride, and instead of just assigning you any driver, we're giving you a list of all of the available drivers in an order that we think suits you, and we'll show you all of the factors that you need to make your decision. Something like, time. this price driver is five minutes away, he has this car with this number plate, here's a picture of it. And by the way, this driver is the favorite driver of five of your Facebook friends, including Mark, Paul, Susan, and Sarah, who have used him X number of times over the last X number of weeks and given him X quality rating and badges for A, B, C, and D. So you get this like nuanced level of understanding of is this the right guy for me? Is this the right service provider? And uh, do I choose him over somebody else that's available? Maybe. I have one guy that's not recommended by anybody, but he's very close uh, and has a... So it depends on the situation? So it depends on the situation, but then every time you make that decision, our AI is learning about your decision-making model, and we only use that to basically offer you better and better recommendations in the future. So so let me ask you this question then. Have you noticed a certain kind of
0: pattern, demographically speaking, of your users
1: of your core users mostly uh, our overwhelming majority of our users are kenyan as opposed to expats uh I think Kenyans, but they're, they're generally speaking, the more Kenyans are experts. I mean, so that does—that's not an insight per se. Yeah, but if you look at the uptake or the penetration what are you this of bit? taxi apps in Nairobi in the early days, uh were they like uh, expats took it up faster, right? Uh, because they were, were you exposed to, to it from other markets. But we've always been a primarily Kenyan-focused business. Okay. Um, okay. That's... Because of that trust, the, that. Like uh, and, and inherent to be cultural fair, value y- around trust.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So, and, and then what? What? What's next? Any other demographic insight that you mm-hmm. that you care to
1: share? Um, yeah. I wouldn't. I probably can't parse uh, like our statistics about trust any deeper in terms of like uh, age or gender off the top of my head. Uh, but what I can say is that. Uh, at the at-large level, the statistics are highly, highly validating of our concept. Mm. Essentially, um, 96% of people will choose a socially recommended driver over an otherwise higher star rated driver. So a five-star driver with no recommendation versus a two-star driver with a recommendation from a friend, people will choose that two-star driver 96% Mm. of the time. More than half of people will wait twice as long for, for someone to recommended. Trust, yeah. uh, we've also learned that trust, interestingly, has about an 80% uh, transitive property. So if I trust you, I will trust someone you trust about 80% as much as I trust you, and that extends one level further. So I will trust the, someone he trusts 80% of the level I trust him, and then it drops to zero. So mm-hmm. after about so two levels out, two there's levels no out. more um, transitive property of trust. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: And I would love to dig into that to kind of figure out how, I guess that's data-driven, yeah. is, is, is and, and nothing more than that, right? Yeah, this
1: is all just from the analysis of okay. tens of thousands of transactions and like, uh, queries okay. that have happened in our system. So let's
0: make that kind of more real. So <clears throat> I, I look at the app, right, and in a sense, the, the taxi person I have now was recommended by somebody I know, right? In the absence of that, it was recommended by somebody that they know, right? So nobody, no driver right now has a direct connection to me via one person. It's one person deep. That's, I, that still holds the 80% trust. Is that what we're saying? But yes. one level beyond that, it's no good.
1: Yeah, so uh, you'll trust your friend's driver uh, and your friend's friend's driver Uh, but probably no further than that, like your friends, friends, friends driver or service provider is too far out. And then there's other factors that obviously come into play like how similar you perceive the person to be to you, uh, similar gender, similar like maybe ethnic or religious or socioeconomic or neighborhood background or professional background or school affiliation. How you know them, basically. Um, how you, uh, yeah. So there's these two factors really that influence trust. It's like uh, the relationship and the similarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, con- and then the third factor probably is the context, right? Got it. Cool. So,
0: man, this is, we can geek out on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, really yeah, hard. sorry, so, I get so, really. Uh... This is awesome. So so you guys are interviewing people in Nairobi and you're trying to figure out like uh, what the problem is. And then, then you realize just a classic app, just a classic matching won't work. You got to layer this trust on top of that. So what
1: we, what we, what we realized was that we didn't want to make the assumption that a person is a commodity. People are people. And there's no other place where you're asked to go and buy a service where you're just assigned the person who's going to be providing that service for you. You always get a choice. And if you have a choice, We also need to provide you with the best information possible to make make your choice. Mm -hmm. And that became our mission. Like how can we not place ourselves at the center of trust? We don't, we don't claim to have a prescriptive algorithm that defines a universal trust metric and then we score you against it and you can be like a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. No, there's only our effort to understand how you Mark think about trust and how can, which information can we give you, as an individual at this exact moment, trying to get this exact service, what's the best information we can show you to help you make a confident decision? That's awesome. really what uh, Utu is the, that's the heart of Utu and what we're trying to do.
0: So you've got three people uh, at the company at this time, when you're doing your market research, right? Yeah, oh, this is, yeah, way back, yeah. Way back, yeah. And so you you realize we need to build something else, um, or oh, we need to build this yeah. unique thing. Yeah. What was the process? like if you can just kind of give us
1: five minutes of the journey? Yeah, we had no idea how to build it. Uh, we had absolutely no idea. okay remember, I'm not a, techni- not a I'm not a tech guy. was a was Russian? Uh, she's a designer. She's a designer. and uh, the Kenyan guy what was his uh, name? Steven, Steven. Uh, Kimani. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. He had just graduated from uh, uni and computer science, had finished an internship at Google, super bright. But we're talking about some pretty hardcore, hardcore uh, yeah. AI work here. Yeah, right. We had no idea how to do this or really even what it entailed. Was it even AI that didn't so much of a thing then? It was coming. Uh, it was early stage, right? Okay. Uh, it was just starting to be like, uh, the, like the next uh, frontier. Mm-hmm. And we basically, without knowing how we were going to build this, we knew we had stumbled on something very, very important uh, in this concept of like, changing the way digital trust works, and something quite foundational. So I can say even from that first six months of Marimoja, we already had the glimmer of Utu in our eye uh, just when we realized, okay, it's really about trust. If it's about trust, it's not just about taxi. Uh, A taxi will be the foray into trust, and that will take us everywhere. And so we've been thinking about that from very early on, but again, we had no idea how to build it. But we did have the foresight to go and try and protect the IP. Uh, So we started filing a patent.
0: But you didn't have. How did you get to IP?
1: (laughs) So so we it was through this process of trying to uh, understand what we would need to file the IP that we then Mm. actually met quite randomly the guy who would become our co-founder and CTO, uh, Dr. Bastian Blankenberg. Who uh, serendipity and coincidence? There's not enough words to describe how it happened, but it just so happened that Bastian had just moved to Kenya uh, from Germany. He had finished his PhD in essentially AI for trust. Wow! Uh, and his <laughs> industry experience was about seven years working in transportation software. So literally, you, you, could not script could, this. you could not stack. You could stack every single engineer, computer scientist in the world on their head. And there wouldn't be a better person to lead technology at Utu than Bastian. And he just happened to move to Kenya because he had married a Kenyan lady and they decided to make their life here. Okay.
0: So Bastian sounds like the guy who should have been going in the opposite direction, right? He should have been going to Silicon Valley, right? Based on his credentials, his host, intellectual, host, I mean, this guy. Those comments drive me crazy. It's, Silith, no, I'm Silicon I'm Valley. Saying, I'm just saying. Theoretically speaking, that's what happens. People like him are
1: pulled in that direction. People tell us all the time, oh, you How? don't sound like a Kenya company, you sound like a Silicon Valley company. I say, what does that mean? What does a Kenya company sound like? Why can't a Kenya company tackle a global fundamental infrastructure issue? Why does Kenya companies have to only tackle Kenya problems? Why can't a Kenya company tackle it's not global so much. Problem, it's not so much like about uh, that. It,
0: it's more about like this guy right here, the likelihood of finding
1: him it was, no, it was totally serendipitous, the most random, lucky, uh, you know, it, it, this. it was a sign from the universe that we were Go on forward. the right track <laughs> and that we should continue doing what, what we doing? were doing, yeah. that we were you like, know about, you bestowed know? this gift from the heavens. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's yeah. gonna laugh when he hears me talking about him like this. Uh, but in fact, it, he. you know, uh, I don't, we would not, there's no way we would still exist as a company. There's no way we would ever gotten the patent that we got. Or be... How did that meeting
0: happen? What were you... How did this... He a met one of experience. our
1: early engineers, uh, a young engineer that was working on our original dev team from Aramoja. I met him at a conference, and a couple of weeks later, that young engineer came to me and said, Hey, Jason, by the way, I met this guy a couple of weeks ago at a conference who maybe you might want to meet. He's so and so, and this and this and that. I said, You waited two weeks to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so I called him up, and he came to the office, uh, I think maybe a day or two later, and he was supposed to come for an hour, and I think we ended up speaking for like five or six hours.
0: What was he moving to Kenya to do other than he was married? He was what?
1: marrying his uh, wife, uh, now wife, and he didn't. Know he was what just looking for opportunities. He was looking for opportunities, and he was basically at that time he ended up uh, coming down to a decision between uh, Marimoja, um and being a like head of computer science department uh, at one of the universities here.
0: Hmm. That would have been a very different
1: experience. And he uh, we had this long talks and very good discussions and ultimately he ended up saying to me you know jason i really love what you guys are doing and it's really in some ways like exactly what i uh, have expertise in in so many ways but you know i'm just uh getting married start i'm gonna start a family i'm starting a new life i need some stability and i'll need a permit and you know i think i just have to go with the university job wow and I remember I was uh, I was actually back in the U.S. Uh, for like a family visit when he called me to tell me that, and I think I remember just crying because I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. Like okay, if we can't get this guy, we, can't we know forward. he's the right guy. Yeah. He there's no one else that should build this but him. And if we're not going to get them, who are we going to get really honestly that can take us there? Mm. And so I thought it was done. And uh, I t- started taking like initial steps to maybe wind up the company. And how and many
0: months was this into the project? is about
1: a year and a half in. We hadn't yet wow. launched our product. We were about, uh, we were, yeah maybe about 16, 18 months. What ago. had you
0: built at that point?
1: We had built the first version of the product, but it hadn't gone live yet. It had gone live in a beta and like uh, some private modes, but not mm. a public launch. So, yeah, so at this point
0: in time, did it have the? What did it not have?
1: Um, stability, reliability, and we were all rookie entrepreneurs. Yeah. I was a rookie CEO. Uh, Steven was a rookie CTO. Uh, our deputy figuring was all it gone. out. We yeah. were just figuring it out and trying to see how to make something work. And so it was, yeah, it was a pretty rough effort. And anyway. we we had this idea already around trust but we didn't know how to implement that we knew that was by that time what had changed was that uber had Had entered the market uh, no they hadn't entered the market Uh. but they had shown that they were going to be a global powerhouse okay and so we knew at that point that we were not going to be able to survive just doing what they did that we needed to have this new, this uh, approach uh, based on trust as our discriminator if we wanted to survive in the face of what we knew would be coming in terms of their market entry eventually. And so we knew we needed Bastion essentially if we were gonna make this trust system work to mm-hmm. be able to compete. And I was devastated that he wasn't gonna join us. And about a week later. Yeah, you know, so what happened? I'm curious. So just, a week later he called me back and said, you know, Jason, Ever since we talked last week, I've been just filled with regret, like I made the wrong decision. Is it too late for me to change my mind and join you guys? Wow. And I said, no, it's not too late. Welcome to the team. That's uh, awesome. That's yeah. a great a so story. Uh, so he's been with us now. That's That was mid 2014 that he joined.
0: Uh, Fundamentally, you, you I guess the fundamental lesson you take from there is in tech, yeah. especially people are the game changers, are the difference. Yeah. If you go to traditional industry businesses, it wasn't pe- people, like talent wasn't concentrated in, in individuals, yeah. it was a system that you built and capital that you deployed. Yeah. So doing business in the old school way wasn't about people, right? In the world we live in today, individuals make the difference. 100%. Talent resides in pe- between 180%. people's ears.
1: And that's a very different thing. A team right. of top performers versus a team of average performers. <clears throat> uh, the, they start out at the same point and the two curves that they chart Diverge. are fundamentally different. Right. And that's exactly right. And I think even as we think about trust in terms of people tech and talent tech, we see our trust infrastructure having a huge role to play there. We're actually working on some pilots in the talent tech sector. For instance, right now, if you want to hire a salesperson, You're going to look at the CVs of a bunch of salespeople and see which companies they sold for. Oh, this guy sold for Microsoft and this and this and this other companies. But isn't it more interesting to ask not who who a guy sold to or sold for, but who he sold to? What if the 20 clients that he managed in those different roles, even if they were totally different companies from yours, were selling to the same clients that you want to sell to? So why are we evaluating a salesperson on who they worked for, on which relationships and uh, sales relationships they maintain on uh, an engineer? Why are we only considering the quality of somebody's code when we also know that the role that they fit uh, in the office and what they add to the team dynamic and the culture and the diversity of your team has a huge role to play? And so things like trust and understanding Uh, That social dynamic and cultural fit uh, becomes very important, but team is It's absolutely the number one thing and I think also a lot of sharing platforms Forget that the guys driving their cars or hosting people in their houses or fixing the thing that uh, whatever those guys are part of your team, too They're the front line of your company They see your clients every day, you Mm -hmm. never see them. I never see my my Maramoja clients face to face on a regular basis, but our taxi drivers see them every day. And the idea that as a platform, we want to squeeze and abuse our service providers in the name of profitability is absurd. That's the front line, that's your supply chain and your sales force. Mm -hmm. Why are we squeezing and marginalizing those people? As a platform, our job is to do everything we possibly can to lift them up. It's why, I mean, this is where I say like our our view on the world and our values inform our strategy more than anything else. So we've never priced, we've never gotten into price wars with the big taxi apps because we don't believe that, that we think that there's a minimum price below which we just shouldn't go yeah. because it's not fair to drivers. drivers yeah. And what we also know is that customers are pretty price uh, uh, insensitive on things like this. Many, passengers on other taxi apps that are priced too low, the passengers end up tipping the drivers in cash because they feel bad for that driver and how badly he's being taken advantage of by the platform. And so we never wanted to be a platform that is growing on the back of anybody, but rather valuing our people from the people inside that are building it to the guys that are working as service providers on that platform.
0: Yeah, I think think this speaks to where capitalism is today, right? Uh, It's always been about cost efficiency and streamlining processes at the cost of the human experience for the most part right and okay. it's always been about shareholder value
1: and, 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 and all that thank god that's been broadened now to stakeholder value right and right. this was the big uh, announcement a couple months ago i think that's the i think that's the move in the right direction yeah i think our, was... our in some ways our discriminator or uh, like uh, competitive advantage is our values uh, are we we do everything i uh, we can to in a way like weaponize our values if we believe that platforms need to treat people that the power dynamics between platform operators and the people that work on those platforms is unfair what can we do to make that a more level playing field well one of the big things we can do is give them agency by letting customers choose the driver or the service provider instead of us choosing because now the better the service provider, service provides, uh, the better service he provides, the more customers choose him.
0: So let me ask so you this he's question.
1: Involved, he's it more agency.
0: Let me ask you this question. So you have this, maybe we're almost done here, but- Oh, so we're many almost questions done. I've got so many questions to ask you. But so, you know, when you look back, what are some of the lessons, you know, if you can itemize, you know, the, the lessons that you've learned, right? Maybe looking at it from this perspective, what would you have done different? You know in your in your journey mm. you think about if you're advising a young entrepreneur or somebody who's coming up behind you what are the lessons you've learned what would you do different uh
1: what are the lessons i've learned and what would i do different uh i'll answer the what i've learned i don't know if I, if i can answer the what i would do differently one because i'm not good with those types of hypotheticals and i really love the situation and the position that Utu because that's what is gets you today. to where you are, yeah. and i have no idea if i took any of those Mistakes that we made along the way out of the path, if we still end up where we are. And where we are today is an incredibly strong position. I mean, having gotten major investments from leading global investors like SoftBank and Xeroth AI and, and Trinity Ventures, so SoftBank uh, is one of your... SoftBank's on our cap table, There's, uh, they have an early-stage ha- fund called DeepCore.
0: Okay, because I was wondering, they don't play... Yeah, anything. no,
1: the, no. So people think about the Vision Fund, but they have other funds. So they have an early-stage fund called DeepCore, which right. is actually their first African investment. So
0: now but, that you bring uh, SoftBank, I mean, are they going to survive this debacle? I mean, <laughs> they it, are upside down. No, I think,
1: uh, you know... Masayoshi and there's no san, way for you I mean, to know that. It's no, no there's no way for me to know that, but I, what I do know is that the guys, and ladies that run these, uh, this organization and everybody that I've interacted with from that organization has been top tier. Uh, they are brilliant people. They're passionate people. Uh, they've been among our most supportive investors. I, uh, He doesn't think, I don't think Masayoshi-san thinks in quarters. I think he thinks in centuries. Uh, and I don't, I think in the. it'll take many years for the results uh, or for the outcome of this situation to be actually determined, whether this was a wise move or not. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, if I were a betting man, I my chips are on something to. <laughs> I mean, look, you, you look at this situation,
0: and you've got to be actually, you have got to just. It, it's like this. Do do we some do people sometimes lose touch with reality? Like because you know we got the, the problem with entrepreneurship. Is sometimes the storytelling just takes, you know, there's there's this uh, I read somewhere where when people are talking, right, when people are addressing a crowd, when you're in the crowd, people's minds stop thinking. Like when I'm listening to a story, we stop being our mind just freezes and just is absorbed into this thing. Sure. So our critical thinking pathways get clogged because we're so busy engaged and something happens. Maybe because human beings have always kind of been storytellers and that's how we've entertained ourselves for so long and that's why we like the movies and all this other stuff. And you see how that, you know, drives entrepreneurship in a lot of ways. I mean, the best storytellers, yeah. right, are the ones who kind of win the day, yeah. if you will, right? At least in the short term. And you look at the videos, from this guy, what's his name, the WeWork guy? What's his name again? Uh, Newman. Yeah, uh, Adam Newman. This dude was like a, <laughs> he could sell ice to the Eskimos, as they say. I yeah. mean, he was a talented dude in terms of just being able to, to cultivate this. He was almost like a, like a I don't know, a, a cult leader, if you will, right? And he kind of behaved that way, too. <laughs> and so you look at that, and you're like, OK, if, if these guys were, like you say, the best of the best, cream of the crop. and maybe they're one of the men's making the decision. If they could be taken for that ride, that's scary. Yeah,
1: Yeah, um, I don't know how much I'll comment on it on that specifically, but I would say that I think WeWork, uh, I don't think any of the books are closed on WeWork. And I think actually there's a strong chance that they make a very strong comeback under a much better set of dude, leadership. They,
0: they have 47 billion dollars of obligations in, their, in, in real estate, which is what they do. Right? They're underwater. Right? That, that company yeah. is probably going to be wound up. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert, but dude, these things are common sense. Sometimes I think we, we let's just be real in, in life, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about one plus one equals two. It's math. Right? And even if you have a long time horizon, we're going to be dead by then. You know what I mean? Like, who cares about 100 years from now? Anyway, we're kind of getting off track here. I, care. I, don't well, know you in
1: I care about 100 years from now. And in fact, I think more entrepreneurs should care about 100 years from now. Like, uh, you in know, Kenya,
0: you can, you, you can only care about, you know, we live in Africa, man. You know, so in New York, they can care about 100 years from now. In Africa you are
1: trying to live <laughs> no but, so. but I would say you know to come back I didn't answer your question about yeah. lessons that yeah, I yeah, learned yeah yeah let's get back there uh, I don't know, and down that's this. actually one of the lessons mm. is that if you are trying to build a high concept uh, massive uh, undertaking from Kenya uh, so say like utu right, right? we have global visions ambitions, for utu yeah. uh, global ambitions and that was why we were able to get that investment is because we are thinking about how we become the global category leader of trust for the entire internet. When did
0: that when did that uh, close? That that
1: uh, Deepcore joined our uh, joined us in 2018 uh, Q3 2018. Um, but uh, How
0: did you get in touch with them? Like, um, so we met them questions.
1: through Xeroth AI. So Xeroth is a uh, number one accelerator for AI companies in Asia. Okay. And we had gotten connected to them through some introductions and connections that we have. We have an R&D partnership in the UK uh, with the University of Southampton. And so we got through them connected to this accelerator in Hong Kong, got accepted, and uh, ended up meeting the SoftBank Core guys through that and ended up negotiating the deal but it, it sounds like to me like somehow
0: you 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 figured out network right like how do you get to connect it to a university in Southampton? like i mean so that again, seems to yeah be- these
1: are uh, these are all of the serendipities that are involved in running a business and it's why one of my i guess my core beliefs is that uh, the best thing you can do as an entrepreneur is stay alive another day, because you don't know what What's opportunity coming, right? is going to show up at your front door. You've you got to be in the next game. Next day. If you're not in the luck. game, you can't. There's no luck to be gotten, right? Right. So, to some extent, you have to make your own luck. You have to be in the game. You have to be armed with the right knowledge and the right experience and the right people. Uh, to be able to capture the luck, luck right <laughs> so luck presents itself but if you're it not wants ready, to capture yeah. if you're not ready it let luck passes and, you by. and the
0: thing is you have to be prepared right it's opportunity and preparedness yes. right the, the classic saying
1: so it's like you have to be in the room like uh, oh it's so lucky i met this guy at that event well you went to an event that was highly likely to produce interactions with people that would be great for you to meet. Right? Was it luck or was it effort to to be in the room in the right room at the right place at the right time? Yeah. You make your own luck, I guess. Uh, yeah. So I think it's a com- it's a combination of both. So I, so you've always
0: gone to places. What, what's a the lesson
1: there? What's the, the lesson? Is uh, I, I'm. I'm a, Stay bit, alive. No, I'm a bit contrarian to m- a lot of entrepreneurs who like live by this philosophy of no like say no to everything say you yeah, know protect your time is, yeah. I say yes to a lot I say yes to things that don't have any immediate relevancy I, I say yes to things that you know uh, a lot of other entrepreneurs might not say yes to but what you realize is that opportunities end up coming up from the places you least expect um, and not necessarily the places that you think they're going to right. so the more things you're open to obviously to to uh, within reason within, like, bounds, uh, yeah. within bounds and uh, you have to draw a line somewhere right. but I think saying yes to more things especially in the early days getting more views into onto what you're doing and bouncing it off more people and extending Uh, you know people are a force multiplier the more people that you know that love what you're doing or believe in what you're doing (laughs) that are funneling the right people to you when they happen to interact with them Uh, so just building those relationships and at the end of the day like uh, this uh, african wisdom the you know if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together together, that has been one of our core philosophies as well that essentially drove our franchising model, which is how we're scaling the Maramojet taxi app around Africa. Mm-hmm. So rather than trying to drive it ourselves from the center Top down, yeah. all the way into every market around the continent, mm-hmm. which is the Uber or Bolt way, and uh, they're only in the top 15 cities in the continent. They're never going to go deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just doesn't work. Doesn't work. But with a franchise model where we bring local entrepreneurs, a network of local entrepreneurs from all over the continent to uh, push this thing that we've built in our, uh, here, and they can push it in their place approach, and create ownership. Yeah. And they're not working for us. They're working for themselves. They're entrepreneurs that are empowered by the products that we've built and the support that we provide. Uh, that's a much better recipe for going to the top 500 cities across Africa, not instead of the top 15. Yeah, no,
0: I, um, I completely agree with you. I, I but, mean, it's, it's, it's again, this, this, it speaks again to this notion of maybe even the 1%, right? Because at the end of the day, when you have very centralized value aggregating systems where only the, the value kind of percolates to the top, and everybody else is just supporting that system yeah. right to extract value and push it up to the top that's basically classic inter, uh, capitalism but what, what you are saying right now is a
1: scenario where you let you you we push the value creation down and decentralize, and decentralize it to, and share the well we, wealth, so we have speak. a much bigger view i mean the idea that if we pushed, say we made Mara very successful all over the continent in a centralized model, just taking, competing the same way against Uber, work. <laughs> and at the end of the day, well forget the amount of work, uh, no one on our team is, is afraid of work, uh, but at the end of the day, what if we created some millions or billions of dollars of wealth for a couple people, that was never our goal our goal was to create an amazing, like accessible, trustable service that people all over the continent can use and improve their lives. So the idea that doing that through a network of entrepreneurs that when we reach that same level of success, instead of all that wealth and value being concentrated in the hands of three or four people, that it's across a network of 500, 600 uh, franchisees across the continent, maybe beyond, uh, and that maybe an exit in that scenario, how many millionaires do we generate across me, the continent that are reinvesting in right, their local markets? Right, and I
0: guess you have to, at some level, exit because you have investors. But sometimes that's even. But part there's of the a lot of different ways of exiting. That's right? true, and that, yeah. that's that's why I'm getting with that. You know, it's it's this notion that people have been shown this narrow yeah. path to to outcome, yeah. and that business is about profit. So if you're going to make a profit over time, there's other ways people can actually, you know quote-unquote exit or absolutely. liquidate their, their position absolutely right? so um, but yeah and and so fundamentally lessons learned
1: so yeah uh, go far uh, go further together say yes more times I say guess. yes uh-huh. uh, I would say bill for value not time right again like the fastest option uh, might also be the most uh, valuable option right mm. so I think about boda bodas mm. they misprice themselves uh, if I'm late Boat boat is the only thing that gets to me my get me much. my meeting on time. <laughs> right, but yet it's also the cheaper option than a taxi. Right. So in many cases, uh, guys price based on like how they see themselves, not how the market sees them. But it's not. Uh, is it them who
0: prices, or is it the? I guess if it's if it. That's not have. a
1: perfect example. Yeah. Uh, and there's another. If I if we had more time, I would give another deeper but, example.
0: Let's go into the specifics. But, so say yes more more, yeah. but within bounds. Yeah. Don't be everywhere. Right, but. Be open to the world, yeah. right? Be open to serendipity. Yeah. Go places. Yeah. Uh, what's the next one? Uh, Price of value, not time? Yes.
1: That, okay. uh, work, uh, kind of decentralize and like uh, ah. go further together, right? Go further together. Uh, try to own the whole thing yourself. Right. Uh, That's actually a very, very important one. That's a very important uh, one. To me, it's probably the most important one. Uh, and then I would say if you... Uh, again, weaponize your values. If you have strong values, live them and make them like, find a way to live those values through how, or how you run your business. Uh, and then, yeah, the day you quit is the day before you succeed. I love that statement, I love that statement. And before
0: we wrap up here, you know, before we got on, the, we started the podcast, you mentioned that you, you've known a couple of people that are, that are leaving. You know, yeah. long-standing entrepreneurs yeah. who, who are leaving the country. Um, what's that about?
1: Um, you know, uh, everybody has their own reasons and I can't speculate on what's uh, internally driving them. But what I've heard is that, you know, there's arbitrary and capricious decisions being made at the governance level mm. uh, in many of these guys' perspectives or from their point of view mm-hmm. that make the business environment pretty difficult. And these are guys that are not naive about how to do business in Kenya. They've been here doing business 20, 25, 30 years in some cases, in different sectors. And they feel pessimistic about uh, the direction of the country. And, and yeah, have decided one to move uh, businesses to Dubai, one to Kigali, uh, one to focus back in the US a bit more. And, uh, <clears throat> it's a shame. Uh, yeah. What, what, but
0: you're long Kenya, like you said. I'm, yeah, I'm you're,
1: super long on Kenya. I think, yeah. uh, whatever, you know, uh, things go like this in the short term, but our trend as a country, up into, uh, it, yeah. as a, as economy, a continent, as yeah. a continent yeah. is like that. And there's no amount of short term fluctuation that changes that fact that we're still riding uh, the short term roller coaster on an exponential curve upward. Uh, And so that's not a bad place to be. There's no other. There's no other place in the world I would rather be working and focusing my efforts than. Despite all the challenges that we face, man. I
0: mean, you know, I've been back for about almost two years now, and I haven't. I haven't been happier, but at the same time more challenged. Right. In terms of being an entrepreneur, that's hard stuff. But just being able to. There's something different, right? Uh, The way people relate you know, there's almost as if there's more time, people look you in the eye, there's much more, It's the interactions are transactional, right? Yeah. Um, and for me, that has been super rewarding. Uh, yeah, what, what's the your people. experience been? Right?
1: It's the people, absolutely. Uh, we, I love our team. Our team has been the defining factor of our success. We're, I mean, uh, it's been a philosophy of ours, again, that anybody that works for us should be an owner of the mm-hmm. company. There's mm-hmm. nobody that we have ever hired or would ever hire that if they didn't accept to be compensated partly in equity. Mm. Uh, We only want people that are true believers Mm. uh, in what we're doing and that are in for the long haul. Uh, Even the lady that's cooking and cleaning for us for years uh, has equity in the company. She's a part of our team.
0: How do Uh, you what's been your experience selling that or positioning that to, to the local mindset? Right? because most people have not been exposed to that, and okay. the benefits
1: of that. Has it been hard, has it been... No, you know, people talk about the talent gap, and right. I don't believe that there's a talent there's gap. There's no talent there's gap. Only, if you can't find good talent, it's probably because your company's not that interesting. Like, <laughs> or, or, to be perfectly or, honest. Or because you or think talent or, looks a certain way. Or you think talent looks a certain way, or maybe nobody wants to work with you because you're a jerk, like, uh, <laughs> or you're doing something boring. I don't know. but. <laughs> Uh, if you say there's a talent gap, you haven't looked and you haven't worked with Kenyans because right. I have like we have the most amazing team and that's like I don't know many companies around here that are saying oh we hate our team they're not good enough they're not uh, everybody I know all the entrepreneurs I know love their team. There's so many brilliant hard-working, committed, awesome smart, passionate people here right. that if you can't find them Something that's wrong. on you, not them.
0: Because we have a 60% youth unemployment, right? Yes. And uh, I think the median age is 18, right? And um, yeah, but but I guess the question was: Have people been readily accepting that notion that the ownership? Uh, you know, how how has that negotiation been? Has it been like tech take? Less for, for equity. What's that been like? What's
1: that mix been like? You know, um, it's been mixed. Yeah, there are certainly a couple people that maybe we've wanted over the years that wanted only salary, okay. and they were not interested we politely in politely walked away. Yeah, uh, it's just not a good fit for us. Got it. They probably could have been a great employee, but this for us is really important. We want everybody that works for us to want mm-hmm. to own the company. buy. Because them. to us, that's an implication. That is an implication that they also believe in our future as much as we believe and right. we're, our, our incentives are aligned. So I would say that, but then I would uh, to come back to the point I was getting to earlier um, about if you're trying to build something really big, a big vision, uh, something maybe that's not been done elsewhere, uh, that's not a copy paste with a twist, uh, which is what investors here seem to like a lot, mm. but you're doing something totally original mm. that's not been tried. You are not going to be able to get these big speculative multi million, two, three digit million dollar valuations that a company can get in California sure. for a big speculative play like that. Even if you're the best salesman, visionary, yeah. you know, Adam Newman type in the world, you have to earn every bit of your valuation. Mm-hmm. And so it means that if you are planning to make money from data and like deep tech in the long term, and that's your goal. You better have a immediate term, term, a short term, and a midterm revenue strategy that is going to get you to that point. Right. Because you're not going to find guys that will give you a $100 million valuation and to load you with swing, $10 million right. to swing for the fences. Right. You've got to earn your for way there. Many, many years, so yeah. that's been our story, right? Uh, right. maramoja birthed into Utu. Maramoja still runs and generates revenue that helps us pay for the future of Utu. I Along understand. the way, we set up Utu House as a co-working space. Why? Because it's strategically valuable for us to be near other AI and blockchain projects around Nairobi, and it generates some short-term revenue for us. And so we it's building the foundations and a solid business if you are trying to pursue that big goal, not just thinking that uh, okay, we're going to make money from data in five to seven years, so and we're going to get somebody there. to give us $20 million to get there. No. That's not going to happen.
0: No, I mean, your execution has been excellent in terms of just how the conditions on the ground require you to be, right? And, um, yeah, I, I think, I believe that you'll tell a very amazing story in five to ten years, right? This Utu thing, the, when, you, when I saw your, the deck you sent to me the first yeah. time, I was like what the heck, who is this guy and why is he here? Because those stories don't come out of here in general, but I'm wrong, because they do, yeah. right, fundamentally. Yeah. I think what you're building with this trust platform, as soon as I got my, wrapped my head around it, I was like, this is, this is what the internet has been missing. Yeah. In a real sense, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a protocol thing almost.
1: It's a protocol and that's, we have what we call U2 protocol, uh, which is exactly that. It is a infrastructure layer uh, for trust for the entire internet. Uh, it's based on decentralized ledgers so people can actually own their data, feel safe and secure in controlling their data, how people access it, who accesses it, whether they can access it, in which way, and if they're compensated for that access and things like this. So this idea of trust, yeah, has just permeated and kind of we're on this uh, pretty epic mission to bridge the gap between how we trust in the real world and how we're asked to trust online. At the end of the day, I think the powerful technologies are the ones that embrace our humanity rather totally. than try to replace it. And if we can bring a much more human model to digital trust, uh, something that really hasn't been innovated on since the mid 90s when eBay came out with like five star ratings and open reviews, and we've kind of been going with like a good enough approach since then. Um, but we think that there's a global multi-billion dollar opportunity to essentially make the internet a safer, more trusted place to gather, work, share, trade, do business. Early days, early
0: days. It's It's early days. Still early days. we got a long way to go. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks. Uh, I think we need to do another... Another one, because we didn't even get into your. (laughs) Yeah, we haven't. uh,
1: Like I said, I talk too much, and you'll have to contain me.
0: No, but yeah, thank you so much for coming. It's been great, and um, yeah, that's pretty much it for now. Thanks a lot, Mark. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, everybody.